DW, World in Progress. With Sarah Stephan. In light of Holocaust Remembrance Day this week, we hear from those who survived the atrocities of Nazi Germany. When I saw Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz, and he told me to go to the left. And then when he moved further down, I ran back to the other side. Then, if I didn't run, run back to the other side, I wouldn't be here now talking to you, because the people on the left, they were talking on the truck. They said they went straight to the guest chamber. We also hear from children who are trying to make ends meet in Cairo's garbage district and how a singer in Rio de Janeiro moves from train to train to offer her art. And it's an end of an era. We bid farewell to DW's radio program, World in Progress. All that coming up now. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. This week marks International Holocaust Remembrance Day. On January 27, 1945, the Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz in occupied Poland was liberated by the Soviet army. The UN designated that day in 2005 to honor the six million Jewish victims of the Holocaust and millions of other victims of the Nazis. We're going to hear from a man named Joseph Alexander who was the only person in his family to survive the Holocaust. His parents and siblings were murdered by the Nazis. At the age of 100, he still works to keep their memory alive and wants to make sure the younger generations learn about the Nazis' atrocities. Hans Pfeiffer met up with Joseph Alexander. Natalie Mahler has his report. Sitting on the porch of his Los Angeles home with a newspaper in hand, 100-year-old Joseph Alexander is the image of a relaxed pensioner. Only a faded tattoo on his left forearm serves as a permanent reminder of a traumatic past. Joseph is a Holocaust survivor, having been forced to endure not only the notoriously brutal Auschwitz, but 11 other concentration camps run by Nazi Germany. Today, he's an American citizen and has lived in his suburban, well-kept house for half his life but he was born and raised in the small Polish town of Kowal with his father, mother, three sisters and two brothers, a family of tailors. Joseph learned the trade at a young age. Then German troops invaded Poland in 1939. On September 13th of that year, the Nazis arrived in Kowal. Joseph was the only person in his family to survive the Holocaust. He gently lays out a few framed photographs on his porch table, pictures of the family he lost. That he survived, he says, came down to seemingly trivial circumstances. If God didn't want me to, to survive, I wouldn't be here. One in particular, you know, I don't know if you heard me speak, when I saw Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz, And he told me to go to the left. And then when he moved further down, I ran back to the other side. Then, if I didn't run, run back to the other side, I wouldn't be here now talking to you, because the people on the left, they were talking on the truck. They said they went straight to the guest chamber. 
at the age of 100, Joseph has never really slowed down. He's constantly on the road with his partner, Reva Sherman, and he's the one at the wheel. Together, they drive through suburban, sunny LA, a world away from his youth in Nazi-controlled Poland. They pull into the LA Holocaust Museum, where they're warmly greeted by a museum worker. He's a familiar face around here. Okay, Joseph comes here up to three times a week. He supports the museum as an eyewitness, mostly to recount the story of his family and his life. Los Angeles is home to a Jewish community of around 560,000 people, making it one of the largest in the world. Joseph heads straight for one particular display case. It's his own, full of sepia-tinted pictures and documents which tell his story. Even today. He doesn't know exactly what happened to his family. I left in the Warsaw ghetto. My parents, two sisters, and one brother. I got out with one sister and one brother, and we went back home. In Warsaw ghetto, I went back home to our hometown, and I was there for three days, and then I went to the camp. And I left my sister and my young brother, and they were taken to another ghetto called the Lodzin Ghetto. And the only thing I know is that they took my young brother. And at that time, they didn't have the guest chambers yet. You know, they were guessing people on trucks. They were running trucks on wood and put the fumes inside. And he was taken to a camp named. Helena. It's the only thing I know what happened to him. I don't know what happened to his sister, and I never could find out what happened to my parents and my sister and brother on the Warsaw Ghetto. The museum's walls are covered with the haunting, sometimes grisly images now infamous for depicting the Holocaust in its brutality: starving, hollow-faced inmates staring into the lens. Skeleton-like bodies disturbingly piled on top of one another. In 1945, Joseph Alexander was liberated from the concentration camp in Landsberg, close to Munich. Here, the Nazis continued to murder people until the very last hour of the war. But Joseph is still doing all he can to ensure the Nazis' atrocities are not forgotten. Today he's speaking with a group of young visitors about his experiences. They listen intently. Joseph's straight posture and smart suit gives him even more of an air of wisdom. Some even pose for pictures with him afterwards. Reaching the younger generations is particularly important to Joseph. They say that about seventy percent of the kids never heard about the Holocaust. So that's why I am here to tell them. The truth, what happened, and I get letters from them afterwards from the kids. Amazing. Joseph says he's had a good life. He's always worked for himself as a tailor in California. Back at his garden, he playfully shows off a piece of movie memorabilia. He flashes a cheeky grin as he fits the costume piece, a helmet, onto his head. This is a helmet from. In the movie, Top Gun. 
How did you get it? Oh, uh, we, we supplied the uniforms. But Joseph still has some unfinished business, specifically in Landsberg am Lech, a town on the Lech River in southwestern Germany. It was here where Joseph was liberated from the nearby concentration camp in 1945. Now he's come back with members from a foundation commemorating the victims of National Socialism. The town is about as picturesque as it gets in this part of the world. Its historic old town remains intact. Cobblestone streets and rows of pastel-coloured buildings give it an almost fairy tale feel. After his liberation, Joseph lived in this town among the perpetrators for another four years. Now he's looking for his old house. He approaches a white house with a dark wooden trim. It's just as quaint-looking as the other buildings in the town. He's certain that this is the one, but nobody comes to the door. Still, it's clear he's excited to be here again. It brings back good memories. Remind me, sir. Remind me. See, I spent four years here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had a very good life here. A very good life. I was here. Good. Good. Um, We used used the barn in the winter time for the car to to park inside. Do the people here in uh, in Epfenhausen knew that you are Jew, uh, Jew and a survivor? Oh, sure, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. sure. They and, know. They, and what yeah, did they no, say? The whole village knew. Yeah. Joseph mostly remembers the feeling of freedom after years of terror. His visit is also a moving moment for his relative Myrna, who has joined him from the United States. She stands close to Joseph, her arm tight around his shoulder. The next stop on Joseph's tour holds no such good memories. The former Kalfering concentration camp in Landsberg. 30,000 Jews were forced to work here in the last months of the war. Only a few prisoner barracks have been preserved, managed by the European Holocaust Memorial Foundation. Today, much of the camp has been overrun by nature. The former barracks, now covered in grass, look more like hobbit holes emerging from a grassy field dotted with yellow flowers. Joseph approaches one of the old barracks. He's keen to go inside. He's holding old photographs. It's not open yet, but we can open it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Joseph clutches old photographs of the camp, comparing them to what he sees in front of him. Hard to recognize them. But uh, as you know, you see here the rose. But the first one here when we came in was the first one. That's where the Lagerelster and the Schreiber, they were living in here. Eventually, someone locates the key to the barracks. Joseph shows Myrna around. He remembers every last detail. See this here, there were some shelves. See as far as see this how this the top wall the cement comes up almost at the top was a shelf all the way across and the same thing on this side. And that's, and that's where we slept, slept on. And it's and that has that's a little fireplace. This here. was a little like a, a oven oh. for the heat. 
for the heat. Did they give you wood to, or something to keep I don't remember what the, they gave me something I think, to heat it. In the last months of the war, around 2,000 people died here. Pictures taken at the camp show prisoners crammed into the barracks, looking starved and sick. It's only a glimpse into the horrors Joseph endured here. Here at this camp, I was, I think, about over a year. From uh, actually, from uh, I came here back on 44, August of 44, and I was liberated in 40 in uh, May 45. Before he leaves, Joseph takes a moment to stand in front of the dozen or so memorial stones to commemorate the victims of the camp. When asked how or why he survived, Joseph simply says it was the will of God. I ask the same question. Why just me when I had three sisters and two brothers? So he wanted me to survive. So I can tell now the young people and everybody, what happened. That quote by Joseph Alexander, ending a report by Hans Pfeiffer, presented by Natalie Muller. During World War II, scores of Jewish children were saved from the Nazis through the so-called Kindertransporter rescue effort. One of them was Arthur Kern. He fled Vienna as a child, making it all the way to Los Angeles, California. Historian Lily Meyer's book, Arthur and Lily, the girl and the Holocaust survivor, tells the story of his escape, and also how the two of them met and became friends many years later. Ben Russell has this report by Katharina Wilhelm. When Lily Meyer first met Arthur Kern in 2003, she was just 11 years old. The then 75-year-old Arthur had returned to his childhood home in Vienna, where Lily Meyer was living. Arthur lived there as a child in the 1930s. I spent my childhood in the apartment during the 1990s, so 60 years apart. He returned to Vienna from Los Angeles because he wanted to see his childhood home. Arthur's parents had made the difficult decision to send him to France by train to escape the Nazis. He and about a dozen other refugee children traveled to France and then onwards to the U.S. Arthur survived the Holocaust. His parents did not. The Nazis deported them, along with Arthur's brother, to Poland, where they were murdered. Through coincidence, a parcel from Arthur's parents resurfaced. It was from 1941, before their deportation. That's how Arthur and my friendship became so deep. Lily Meyer traveled to the U.S., got to know Arthur and learned about his life, becoming part of his family, so to speak. In fact, Arthur's story inspired her to become a historian and ultimately write a book about his life and the history of Jewish children sent to the U.S. through the Kindertransporter rescue effort. She initially published her book in German, but... Arthur knew German, but his family didn't. So I promised Arthur on his deathbed that I'd translate this book into English. Lily is now doing a book tour of the U.S. She says it's a very different experience to touring German-speaking countries, where she mainly speaks at schools and other educational events. I still have 35 readings lined up, spread over 60 days in 10 different U.S. states, so I get around. 80% of these readings are at Jewish institutions. 
She is reading at the Los Angeles Holocaust Museum, overshadowed by the Israel-Hamas war. This has a major impact on her tour, she says, which is why she's adapted some of the excerpts that she's reading. Lily says she can imagine that at this moment, nobody in the audience wants to hear about the war and the horrors of the Holocaust. Here. I focused more on how Arthur became a happy person. He became an incredibly happy person. That was already clear in the book. Because Arthur made a conscious decision to stop hating. And I think that's a message that should be spread right now. Arthur repeatedly told her that hating the Nazis had done more harm than good. Because the Nazis would never know he hated them. So instead... He wanted to drop the hate and focus on the future. In Los Angeles, Arthur worked as a rocket scientist and was involved in preparing the moon landing. His son David attended Lily's Los Angeles reading. He was deeply moved by his father's story and proud of his achievements. I said to him, you came here with nothing. You did everything on your own. You got married. You put three of us through college. You have, see how many grandchildren, four Four grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, and if I have to add up the score, it's Art Kern six, Hitler zero. Arthur Kern's son David there, ending a report by Katharina Wilhelm, presented by Ben Russell. You're listening to DW's World in Progress. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. We return after a quick peek at what my colleagues have been up to. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20K. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. This is Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. Now on to Egypt, where Kairos and his friends live amongst trash and flies in a garbage district. The neighbors collect, sort and sell trash from Cairo's richer neighborhoods. Still, the neighborhood has a school that the children love, and they try to make the best of it. Jennifer Collins has this story by Anna Osios. Flies swarm around everywhere in this neighborhood, on the edge of Egypt's capital, Cairo. Slightly annoyed, Kairos swats them away with his hand, as he walks down the street to his school. A foul stench hangs in the air. The 11-year-old lives in one of the city's garbage districts. And it smells like this almost every day. Uh, I am Karas. I am Karas, and I live here in this street. Most people here are garbage collectors. I don't really like it here, because the neighbourhood is not nice. It's full of trash, and the air isn't clean. Some 25 million people live in the Greater Cairo area and they produce tonnes of trash each day. Waste disposal firms aren't usually the ones picking up the garbage though. That job falls to the Zabalin, which translates literally as garbage people. Karis' neighbours collect waste from wealthier areas and bring it to their majority Christian neighbourhood, where they sort and recycle it. It's dirty work. Kids like Karis' schoolmate Mina often have to help out. Mina and his brother specialise in plastic waste. They collect trash like yogurt cartons and plastic bottle tops every day after school and even during the holidays. 
they wash, shred and sell their bounty. I work during the holidays and I don't get to play. I sell plastic spoons and bottle tops. I save the money. Mina gets less than 30 cents for a kilo of bottle tops. His pants are full of holes and are black with dirt. His shoes are falling apart. Poverty is part of everyday life in the neighbourhood, in Karis's family too. His father works as a waiter and can just about feed the family. A tiny, stuffy attic apartment is all they can afford. We live in a really small apartment. There's just one bedroom and a living room. I sleep on a mattress on the floor in the living room. It's the last day of school. Karis picks up his report card. He proudly shows it off. There's a blue dot beside all of the subjects. That means he's gotten top marks in each one. But Karis has a dream. He'd love to go soccer training. We play soccer every day on the street and every day I improve my skills. I want to be a footballer, but we don't have the money for that. That's why I can't train with a team. We're just simple people and we don't have any money. Karis's parents know all about their son's dreams, but they can't do anything to help him. They can only afford the necessities. Food prices have skyrocketed in Egypt, says Karis's mother. Even the children feel it. Everything is so expensive. But the worst thing about the neighbourhood is the smell. We don't have clean air, we can barely breathe. Karis's school, in the middle of the neighbourhood, is the one place children can hang out. It's the only chance for hundreds of families to get an education for their kids. But some parents can't even afford the small school fee, says Moody Fayed, the school's principal. He's just come from a difficult talk with a desperate father. Uh, the situation, uh, uh, it's not a good situation because of the economic uh, situation, the economic uh, affairs. Everybody suffers nowadays, nowadays because uh, it's really it's a difficult time for the people. And uh, I can say... Uh, from my experience, long experience, this is the most difficult time in Egypt. Uh, everybody suffers. Those who used to be rich, suffering, are suffering nowadays. The poor, the situation is much worse with them. So if we talk uh, definitely about the situation in my place here in this area, it's so difficult because, as you know, they depend mainly on collecting and sorting the garbage. Uh, their income is not, is not enough. Imagine that if, uh, if you have four children in the school, uh, each one should pay from 5,000 to 6,000, yeah, and all in all, almost 25,000. It's, uh, it's, it's a tragedy. That means a family with four children would have to pay around €720 a year for their children to attend school. Still, the school is popular. Every year, more children apply than they can take in. 
How can they decide who will receive an education and who won't? It hits Fayed hard. Actually, the, at this time, I, I suffer a lot uh, psychologically more than anything else. The parents fight to come here. Uh, number one, it's close to them. Uh, they can receive good education. Uh, they can... Uh, we give care to their children. Not like the state schools. A lot of the children in the class, more than 70 students in one class. Here, maximum is 40. Karis' schoolmate Mina, who collects plastic waste, dreams of becoming an engineer when he grows up. He'd like to forget about garbage and build a nice house. Karis wants to be a footballer, or a surgeon, he says. But most of all, he wants to move out of the garbage district, away from the flies. Jennifer Collins presenting a report by Anna Ozios. And for our last report, we go to Rio de Janeiro, where a young singer is trying to make ends meet by performing on trains. If she's not singing in bars, at parties or weddings, she's singing for commuters. Connor Dillon has more in this report by Reinhard Baumgarten. The train at Platform 8, heading for Jaberi, begins its departure. It's the starting signal for the vendors. They have everything. Chocolate bars, hard candy, USB cables, stem cell patches, popcorn. A woman named Valeska waits patiently until the first wave of vendors has finished. And then she turns on her speaker. For the past 10 years or so, Valeska has been making a living by singing on these suburban trains. I feel free. I feel like my authentic self. I didn't even know I had it in me. The 29-year-old says she can live off the money she makes here. And there's been no problem with the people working on the trains. There's no rule that explicitly bans singing for money here. Three policemen in combat gear watch her and the busy vendors unmoved. Most of the passengers are staring at their smartphones. Some bob to the music, others sing along softly. Hearing music makes you feel peaceful, calmer. It doesn't matter which instrument or which voice it comes from. It's a decent job. As long as you don't steal, it's a decent job. That woman should be congratulated. I love it. I told her the sound was a bit distorted and that she should take some of the bass out of her voice. Valeska makes about 20 euros on average per day. She goes from one train to the next and rarely gets turned away. Once there was this guy who said, wow, you came here to beg? You're asking for a handout? I nearly lost it. I'm offering my art. I'm not asking anyone for anything. Five days a week, it's singing in the train for Valeska. 
On the weekend, she performs at weddings, parties, or with a band. People send me messages. They follow me on Instagram. They don't just give me money. They also give me recognition. Her next goal is to release an album recorded in a professional studio. Connor Dillon with a report by Reinhard Baumgarten. And that's a wrap for the W's What on Progress. As I said when opening the show, it's time to say goodbye, because the W has decided to discontinue this program amid an audio restructuring drive. I would like to take the time to thank everyone who helped produce the show along the years, or who was a contributor to the program. And of course, a big thank you to you, who's listening at the moment. If you want more radio shows and podcasts from DW, check out DW Podcasts on YouTube. And if you're interested in environmental content, check out DW's Living Planet. That's also on YouTube or your favorite podcast player. Thanks again from all of us here in Bonn, Germany. Today's studio tech was Ziad Abu Sleiman. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Goodbye and take care. <laughs>